0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin and go to Glasgow for an assessment of the COP26 climate talks and speak with Robert Stevens, a professor and the director of the Environmental Economics Program at the Harvard Kennedy School, and a lead author of three reports by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We will discuss the work drafting an agreement that has gone on this week since the world leader spoke on November the 1st and 2nd, and the work that will continue this coming week until the almost 200 government ministers sign on to an agreement. We will also discuss the apparent gap between the actions of the negotiators inside and the aspirations of the demonstrators outside the huge UN conference venue in Glasgow. Then we'll speak with Anatole Levin, a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and a journalist covering South Asia and the former Soviet Union for the Financial Times, the BBC and the Times of London. He joins us to discuss his new article at Responsible Statecraft, Climate Chaos, The Global Threat Multiplier of Our Time. The more the U.S. foreign policy establishment indulges in great power competition, the less prepared it is for a real crisis. Then finally, we'll speak with Joel Rogers, the Noam Chomsky Professor of Law, Political Science, Public Affairs, and Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a contributing editor to The Nation, whose books include The Hidden Election, On Democracy, Right Turn, What Workers Want, and American Society, How It Really Works. We'll discuss the exaggerated alarm at the alleged demise of the Democrats and what they can do to both announce and promote a vision forward. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy, as we create a reality-based community in Post-Truth America. And joining us now from Glasgow, Scotland, is Robert Stavins, a professor and the director of the Environmental Economics Program at the Harvard Kennedy School, and lead author of three reports by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Stavins.
1: Good to be with you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And you're there in Glasgow, and I guess on the November the 1st and 2nd, you had the world leaders there, and then all of this last week, they've been drafting uh, the agreement. Then next week, I take it, the almost 200 governments will then, their government ministers will then approve uh, the, the text of what was drafted this, this last week. Is that the process
1: well, not not quite. So the process is, is that the Paris Agreement was drafted and signed in the year 2015, and that agreement is completed. There is what's called the rule book that goes along with the agreement. It's sort of the regulations that follow a statute. All but one of 29 articles have been completed, and that's Article 6. So negotiations are taking place on that uh, last week and this week on that one article, Article 6 of the agreement.
0: So, do you, you get the impression as one gets from the press reports that there's a kind of tension, if you will, not necessarily a, a disagreement between what's going on inside the big hall, the UN conference hall there in Glasgow and what's going on outside with on Saturday, fairly substantial demonstrations, up to 100,000 people. Uh, of course, you've got Greta Thunberg and the young people saying the whole talks have been a failure, but of course they're not over yet, are they?
1: Well, it's only halfway through the period. They're two weeks, and this is the halfway point, essentially, today. I I, I have not seen the demonstrators. There are demonstrators every year. I've been coming to these annual conferences, the parties, for probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years now, and Uh, unless they're in some part of the world that's very difficult to get to, there are demonstrators. But it's also the case that climate change is getting more and more attention from the public. There have been youth activists that have been increasingly prominent over since the sort of essentially 2019. And due to COVID, this is the first COP that's taking place during this period of youth activism and heightened attention to climate change. So it's not surprising that there would be uh larger uh demonstrations
0: so so far well let's going in of course the aim is to get the almost 200 countries to commit to capping global warming by 1.5 degrees celsius and getting countries to review their uh, efforts and update more frequently on on progress is being made in this race between getting deeper cuts as the problem gets worse, and then, of course, providing financial support for poorer nations to adapt to climate change. Now, in this last week, we've had pledges to tackle forestation, deforestation, to move away from coal. 105 countries signed on an agreement to reduce uh, methane emissions by 30% by the end of the decade. And we've also had major financial institutions saying that they can uh, mobilize trillions of dollars to shift the global economy towards cleaner energy. So is that a pretty good summary, would you say, Robert?
1: Well, I mean, the main thing is that the Paris Agreement itself, the, the the key element of the Paris Agreement, where targets and actions are established, are the individual nationally determined contributions from the 190 or whatever it is, parties to the Paris Agreement. If, when an additional agreement is reached and it is going to result in emissions reductions that go beyond those nationally determined contributions then that's additional but most of what you're describing are the ways in which the individual countries will achieve their nationally determined contributions. So it's not an additional commitment. It's saying, we're going to do the following, and that's how we're going to achieve our NDC, our nationally determined contributions. These NDCs, according to the Paris Agreement, are to be renewed every five years. So back at the time of the paris talks with the initial submissions and then five years came up last year but of course the conference of the parties was postponed last year because of the pandemic so this the sixth year is actually year five and this is the year in which they're renewing the ndc's and something like 140 parties at a minimum have already done that it's probably more by now that's the fundamental Uh, part of this but in addition to the negotiations this is also a convention Uh, it's a convention of people who are interested in climate change and so you know you have private businesses or trade associations who will make public statements you'll have non-governmental officials of all sorts who are going to make statements so all of that is going on in addition to the actual negotiations which are over implementation of the Paris Agreement.
0: So the fact that neither China, Russia or Saudi Arabia is there, is that a problem?
1: Well, you know, it's certainly significant. It's certainly significant, mainly with regards to China, but also India. But China is most important. I mean, the way we got the Paris Agreement in the first place was the co-leadership at the time Uh, of the United States and China. This was during the Obama administration. And what's happened now, for a variety of reasons that actually go way beyond climate change, uh, we've evolved China and the United States from a spirit and a reality of cooperation to one of confrontation. And it's not because of differences of views on climate change. It's because of issues of international trade, intellectual property, human rights, Security in the South China Sea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, this is, these are all areas now of confrontation between the two countries, and climate change is actually the collateral damage.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Robert Stevens, who is in Glasgow, Scotland, at the UN Climate uh, COP26 talks. He is the professor and the director of the Environmental Economics Program at the Harvard Kennedy School and the lead author of three reports by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But surely, is there a sense, though, that this great power competition is a luxury we can't afford, given the existential threat of global warming, which the President Biden says it's an existential threat? Is there a way to get the big powers, particularly the United States and China, to work together here, as opposed to what you just outlaid, all the, all the problems? And Of course, we lost four years uh, with Trump. So and things got worse with China clearly during that period. So I'm just wondering whether there's a, an understanding that there's a greater threat to all of our national securities whether whether you're in living in China, Russia or or the United States from global warming itself.
2: Well the
1: the unfortunate reality is that you know the spirit of confrontation that started during the Trump administration is to a large degree being continued. Um, so what was before the America First policy has become with the current Biden administration. And I'm, you know, I'm nonpartisan or bipartisan with the current Biden administration. It's be- gone from America First to American manufacturing first. And you know, you hear this all the time. Their economic populism is now the way, and it's. Vary. It's one of the few areas where there's agreement on a bipartisan basis between the U.S. Congress and the White House. So China bashing has become the norm. Now, the Chinese view is that they would like there to be some linkage or trade offs between all those other issues I mentioned, you know, international trade, human rights, all of those, and then climate change, and then they'll be more cooperative the us view is no there's not going to be there are not going to be any trade offs we're not going to give in on those other issues in order to get you to the table on climate change and i'm just describing to you the facts i'm not making a value judgment about it
0: well obviously the trade particularly with china's manufacturing capability with solar panels has been counterproductive and i imagine biden could possibly change that but what about the pledge to end coal-fired plants and stop financing them? Again, neither Russia nor China or India signed off on those those agreements.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you, I can't say anything about Russia, but in terms of you know China and India, their perspective is that wait, we are still a developing country. Our economy still needs to grow. We still need to get a greater diffusion of electricity generation to more people. And so unlike you in the United States and Europe and the OECD countries, uh, we cannot at this point simply begin to uh, bend down uh, the use of coal. We'll do it in the future. And obviously that's the Chinese statement is that it's going to happen in the future. But their view is that they can't do it now. The U.S. and European view is Uh, closer to what you said, namely that they must do it now.
0: Well, but the one agreement that is on on methane reduction, 30% by the end of this decade, um, neither China nor Russia nor India signed on again to that. Russia, with the permafrost melting, is apparently, uh, there are even possibilities of kind of volcanoes of methane spewing forth in the future. So that the need is acute, and it seems like it's kind of an identifiable problem that where you could actually reduce 30% of global warming in an identifiable way. So do you see that as kind of the low-hanging fruit, something that's doable in spite of the fact that these major countries didn't sign on?
1: So I think that on, on methane, much more is doable. Just the, you know, the U.S. position itself. Um, in terms of the regulations that are being put in place, which were essentially the old Obama era regulations on methane leaking from uh, wellheads and pipelines are very, very important because methane is such a potent greenhouse gas, although it lasts in the atmosphere much shorter time than carbon dioxide. So it's important that the U.S. The U.S. played a leadership role in this. This is something the Biden administration is and should be very proud of in terms of the international methane uh, uh, agreement that they've gotten here. Uh, So it is important. And I'm sure talks will continue with uh, China, India, and for that matter, perhaps with Russia in order to try to bring them on board.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes, and you're there in Glasgow, what do you expect to happen this week?
1: Well, what I would expect this week is, importantly, is that uh, there will be closure least I hope, uh, on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which is a very important element where there are opportunities for countries to finance emissions reductions or facilitate them in other countries and then essentially receive credit for that toward the achievement of their own nationally determined contribution. That's been held up by the Brazilians because what the Brazilians wanted in exchange for agreeing to that article of the Paris Agreement was to be able to carry over credits that they have left from the Kyoto Protocol period and bring them into the Paris Agreement period. The Europeans were very strongly opposed to that. The United States is also now uh, opposed to that. But my understanding is that the brilliant Brazilians have said they're open to compromise, which probably means you know some discounting of the credits. If there's one ton, they would only get credit for a half a ton or a quarter ton or whatever. So that's something that will happen this week. And if there isn't a walkout by anyone, and I haven't seen any evidence that there's about to be a walkout, there will be stronger statements about the $100 billion of finance, whether or not there will be any kind of uh, new commitment in terms of making up the shortfall, because it's going to be a few years before the $100 billion is achieved. That's probably uh, more doubtful that we would see that happen, because the G20 didn't. Uh, agree to it previously.
0: Sure, but the Brazilians did sign on to the deforestation agreement, so, and that's key with the Amazon, right?
1: It, it, potentially it's very important. You know, with all of this, Ian, yeah. I, I don't need to tell you what's a necessary condition is saying a, having an agreement and saying this is what I'm going to do. But what's also a necessary condition is to do it. And, you know, it's just really too soon to say anyone who says the Paris Agreement is a failure is operating on the basis of ideology, not reality. Anyone who says the Paris Agreement is a great success is likewise operating on the basis of ideology, not reality, because we don't know. The Paris Agreement is very promising. I think it's a vastly better structure for accomplishing something meaningful. That was the Kyoto Protocol for a variety of reasons. But we have to wait and see what the countries actually do. So, you know, just now, the United States is pledging a very, very impressively 50 to 52 percent reduction by 2030 relative to 2005. Well, we have to wait and see what are the policies this administration, working with the Congress, obviously, or independently with regulations, can actually put in place. And where are we by 2030? And the same could be said about other countries of the world.
0: Well, Robert Stevens, I thank you very much for joining us here today. And we've been speaking with Robert Stevens, who is in Glasgow, Scotland, at the COP26 UN Climate Talks. He is a professor and the director of the Environmental Economics Program at the Harvard Kennedy School and a lead author of three reports by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We're going to take a brief station break. we back looking into how the United States foreign policy establishments indulges in great power competition, making us less prepared for the real crisis of global warming.
3: I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start
0: And joining us now is Anatole Levin, who's a Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and a journalist covering South Asia and the former Soviet Union for the Financial Times, the BBC and the Times of London. And he has a new article at Responsible Statecraft, Climate Chaos, the Global Threat Multiplier of Our Time. The more the US foreign policy establishment indulges in great power competition, the less prepared it is for a real crisis, and he is the author of Climate Change and the Nation State, now in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anatole levin Hello. Well, thanks for joining us from the UK, and it would seem that when you talk about the global threat multiplier of our time being climate change, of course, you're quoting from the Pentagon's assessment there, but your article actually makes the case that it's also the greatest national security threat to the United States, not to mention the rest of the world. Many countries, of course, will be much worse off than the United States. So I guess the task ahead, as difficult as it is, is to convince the American people and, and its government, along with the Chinese and the Russians and other governments, that they have to cooperate and work together with this, you know, we're all in lifeboat earth together. Is that it in simple terms?
3: Yes, I mean, that's pretty much it. Uh, But uh, I mean, they they don't have to cooperate as long as they all do something, even if it's in competition with each other. I mean, what they can't do, uh, which even under President Biden's package, if it goes through, uh, his administration is proposing to do is to go on spending three times as much on military research and development as they are on research and development into action against climate change. Uh, so, you know, I argue uh, both in my article and in the, my book, uh, Climate Change and Nation State that came out this year, um, that this is a false sense of priorities, you know, both for the United States and, well, for all major countries around the world, that um, in the end they're not existential threats to each other, but in the long run, climate change is.
0: Well, I did speak to um, some people in, in Glasgow, and of course the COP26 is still going on. But there was a lot of emphasis on, on dealing with methane, and uh, President Biden uh, pledged, along with I think about 100 other countries, to reduce methane emissions 30% by the end of the decade. Now, of course, that is a heavy lift because... A lot of methane is leaking from permafrost, particularly in Siberia, from wetlands all around the world, from rice paddies, which are crucial to feeding a lot of the world, and from cattle as well, which is also a part of the food chain. But what was encouraging about my conversation with some of the people that were working on those panels was that there are at least four promising technological fixes, not for the whole problem, but for it in general uh, that nature does have a way of reducing methane. It's obviously virulent when it first happens, but it it dies off much quicker. And CO2 lasts seems to last for almost forever. So I don't know whether there are any technical fixes for CO2, except obviously nuclear submarines are able to scrub the CO2 out, but you need a nuclear reactor for that. So are you suggesting Anatole that this money that's spent on these on all these defence budgets in these great power rivalries? could be spent on this emerging technology
3: well yes because you know if you look back in american history you know eisenhower and nixon you know democratic presidents as well you know accepted that developing america's wider technological economy uh, and transport economy uh, was as essential to or indeed more essential uh, to america's national security in the end than Weapons. I mean, you have to have both, of course. Uh, But, you know, the development of the American highway network, the development of computers, uh, the development of civil aviation, you know, all of these things were critical to America's economic. Position in the world, and don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't. I believe that a lot of the military competition with China is exaggerated or unnecessary. But of course, there's going to be economic competition with China, um, and well, the Chinese have already made absolutely clear their intention to dominate global markets in renewable energy, um, and you know, America needs to, to to compete with that because obviously, if China, you know, dominates the economic future the way that America dominated the 20th century, uh, you know, (laughs) China is going to lead the world, and you know, no no number of American aircraft carriers or nuclear submarines is going to stop that.
0: So, given that we've had this wrangling here in the United States over a 3.5 trillion dollar stimulus package that's been reduced down to 1.85 trillion dollars, and it may not even happen at all now that the president has, and that the House has gone ahead and voted on the bipartisan uh, bill. You know, we just don't know what the future is. But even if you take the $3.5 trillion number over 10 years, that's under half of what the defense budget is. So that's what I find extraordinary is that there's an enormous alacrity with which money is thrown at the Pentagon on a bipartisan basis and nothing but absolute gridlock when it comes to talking about dealing with other threats. So how do you make this real national security threat the existential threat that Joe Biden says that climate change poses who 's going to step up and tell us that the real threat that we face and that we 've got to spend money on is climate change, not the pentagon
3: well um, one would hope that patriotic generals would do so sooner or later that that may be too much to hope um, but I, I one can only hope that over time um, you know and this is also one of the arguments in my book that. You know, patriots or civic nationalists—call them what you will will look into the future and say, you know, look, we are committed to the future existence, the future prosperity and success of the United States. You know, going on into the um, 21st and 22nd centuries, and climate change—if uh, we fail, you know, to get it under control—will deeply threaten um, and conceivably even in future destroy. The United States. So, you know, of course, this is a duty to the planet and to humanity, and we need international cooperation. But I hope that people will also focus on the fact uh, that it is also specifically a threat to their countries, including the United States.
0: Well, in terms, though, of cooperating, or you say that you can both compete and cooperate, the examples in your article. Uh, You give the example of the Syrian war, the civil war that all but destroyed that country. That had its roots in climate change. Obviously, it's going to get worse in so many different parts of the world. And even if the United States is not that badly impacted, it may be horrible, but not catastrophic. The rest of the world is going to be roiling. So that's a pretty common message that gets everybody's attention Is there any understanding of, I know, for example, in terms of just technology, for solar, for example, the sanctions that uh, Trump slapped on China are totally counterproductive, even though American solar producers have have stepped up a little bit. It's still about 10% of the market. So there's an example of where we should not be sanctioning China, but working with China. What's your sense of models of cooperation, if that's possible? I mean... At the end of the day, your article says if the U.S. and China are in a kind of cold war, if they go into a hot war, maybe over Taiwan or something, then it's game over for the planet. So that's the stark situation, is it not? It's either cooperation or game over.
3: Well, yes. And I, I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we go on hoping, right, and working. But I can't say that I'm you know, particularly optimistic, at you know, least of all, uh, after you know, what has happened or not happened in Glasgow this past week, Uh, I mean, I I think that sooner or later, natural disasters will reach such a level um, that people, you know, assuming that we haven't gone to war by then, uh, countries will simply be forced to drop their hostility to each other um, and cooperate, but by then it may be too late. Uh, But one thing is, you know, that um, we have to prioritise. And that does mean, you know, making some hard choices. Uh, It does mean prioritizing climate change um, over, for example, human rights in China. Um, If you prioritize the one and attack the Chinese state, they are not going to cooperate with you when it comes to climate change. So in the end, we just have to decide what is most important for America and the world.
0: So does that mean to say that the United States should give up on democracy and the rule of law in terms of taking a moral stand?
3: Look, it's only, you know, it's not that long ago that people were desperately worried about the survival of democracy in the United States.
0: Well, they should be worried now, Anatole. The Republicans are involved in massive voter suppression, which will mean we'll have a one party state in, in a couple of years. Well, indeed. So,
3: I mean, the, the, the point is, the first thing we've got to do is preserve democracy at home. Right. And I mean, that uh, requires, of course, you know, all manner of reforms. But it also uh, means, you know, trying to build the resilience of our societies uh, against climate change, because obviously, I mean, you know, if if um, the extreme right wins the presidential elections in France, if you have constitutional breakdown in the United States, there's not going to be a great deal of point in preaching democracy to China and Russia, is there? You know, I think you know there's a there's a sort of cognitive dissonance there. Um, we've you know our democracies at home are in trouble, um, and we've got to strengthen them uh, before we preach to anybody else on the subject.
0: Well, clearly, though, we have to work with Russia on methane, particularly when it comes to Siberia. And apparently, from what I talked to with, with the people in, involved in these panels involved with COP twenty six in Glasgow on methane, there's even a possibility of, as the permafrost method, even sort of like volcanoes of of methane can spew forth. And I mentioned the other parts of the world, wetlands, rice paddies, and cattle. So it's a massive lift, but they've identified methane as, if you can tackle it, as about 30% of global warming. It's almost like a low-hanging fruit. But first thing first would be to get to work with Russia because apparently there's very identifiable places where massive amounts of methane are being released and and nothing's being done. So how would you recommend then that Biden work with Putin on this?
3: Well, uh, technological cooperation. You know, the Russians are behind there, uh, but they are anxious to cooperate. And, uh, of course, I mean, you also have to, con- to control temperatures in general, because it is the it is in the end the warming of the Arctic, which is releasing the methane from the permafrost. And that, I mean, is, if that happens very quickly on a massive scale, I mean, that's an apocalyptic threat, because that could tip, you know, three degrees into four degrees into five degrees. But I think also you've got to lay the basis. Um, I mean, I hope not, uh, but in future, um, for the possibility of geoengineering in the Arctic, um, because you know, the, um, the threats of tipping points and feedback loops are very much concentrated in the Arctic, you know, melting of the ice, the release of methane. And so we're not talking about, you know, manipulating the climate of the entire planet, but targeted uh, climate manipulation in the Arctic, but of course that has to be done cooperatively. If people start doing that competitively, then it could lead to you know absolute catastrophe. Uh, so we have to start laying the basis for deep cooperation in future. But you know that obviously means restoring uh, a minimally you know, cooperative and consensual relationship today. And, you know, that does once again involve choices. You know, you're going gonna to prioritize um, climate change. You can't prioritize NATO expansion. It's as simple as that.
0: And I would assume that permafrost is also mel- melting in the north of Canada and Alaska, is it not? Absolutely. No,
3: I mean, it's it's obviously not just a Russian problem, but that's why the Arctic states need to... Um, you know, really talk to each other and work together on this. And I must say, it infuriates me when I read this stuff and listen to this stuff about how the security threat in the Arctic is that Russian ships will be able to, Travel more freely. I mean, you know, from one part of Russia to another. By the way, you know, all that Chinese ships may go up there. I mean, that totally misses the point. Um, you know, the ships aren't aren't going to do any damage. The methane release is, if we don't bring it under control, and the melting of the ice, of course.
0: Well, the melting of the ice is so obvious, isn't it? Because the heat is reflected off of the white ice caps of the North and South Pole, reflects back into the atmosphere as that mass is reduced down, then you have less reflection and more absorption as the, the areas of the dark oceans increase. And, of course, as all this ice melts, it raises the sea level at the same time. It's happening. It's obvious. We've seen it. I don't know what we can do. I mean, paint every road white, every roof white. We've got to start reflecting this light back into the atmosphere. Isn't that a part of the challenge, along with these other horrific feedback loops that you talk about?
3: Yes. And uh, I mean, I, I do think we've got to explore, you know, when it comes to research and development, all these different possibilities, you know, because uh, unfortunately, uh, you know uh, I criticise the environmentalist left in my book as well, because, you know, they've been deeply prejudiced against carbon capture. They've been prejudiced against geoengineering. They've been desperately prejudiced against nuclear energy. Um, and know uh, you know, if you really once again prioritize climate change, you can't afford to ignore uh, all the different possibilities of bringing it under control. Things are too serious for that, and and also, frankly, our, our means are too limited, because we've experienced in you know over the past year and more um, that while renewable energy is you know, very hopeful, and, you know, it's it's already playing a major role. It still does have massive technological drawbacks, you know, when the sun is not shining, and when the wind is not blowing, and we're not yet in a position to store this stuff. So you can't take up a fundamentalist attitude and say, oh, you know, we won't think about all these other things, because the only, the, the, the only thing we're interested in is limiting carbon emissions. No, I mean, if, if this is a real you know, a real, real emergency, then we need to, you know, con- really deeply consider and develop all the possibilities of dealing with it.
0: Well, you know, the, the Los Alamos and Livermore and these other labs that we have here in the United States, they've been concentrating on nuclear weapons forever. But they've also been experimenting with all kinds of reactors. And the ones that are out there now, whether they're made by the Russians or by the United States, tend to be the 1950s technology. And a lot of it is not very good. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why the environmentalists are get it, against it. But there's an awful lot of research done since then. And as I mentioned earlier, the only way on this planet so far that we know how to get rid of CO2 is nuclear reactors in, in submarines.
3: Yeah, well, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not in favor of, you know, uh, building more 1950s style reactors. Uh, but I'm also not in favour of getting rid of the ones we have, you know, until renewable energy is capable of taking its place. Um, but I am in favour of, you know, really pouring money into, you know, attempts. And look, they may not work. You never know. That's the thing about R&D. Uh, into attempts to, to develop new, better, you know, cleaner forms of new nuclear energy, um, you know, like fusion energy. Um, and as I say, all the, you know, all, all the other possibilities. I mean, because people say not you know not the climate deniers but the the people who try to resist serious climate change action. You you know, oh, you know, don't worry, some technological breakthrough will come along. Well, maybe it will, but there's an old, you know, proverb, God helps those who help themselves. You know, no technological breakthrough ever just happened. People had to do something about it. And and actually, I mean, if you look at the the great technological developments of of the past 120 years or so, um, in the vast majority of cases, there was a really strong impact of state money and state leadership, uh, above all, of course, in military technology and war. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there may well be um, possibly completely unforeseen technological breakthroughs and solutions out there. But we've we've got to um, we've got to work on them, right?
0: Sure. And meanwhile, we're wasting billions on, on things that don't work, like the F thirty uh, five fighter. So, it wouldn't hurt to still
3: waste. I mean, uh, quite apart from, you know, whether we should be spending money on weapons at all, you know, report after report, which highlights the unbelievable level of waste in our military establishment. Exactly,
0: exactly. Well, we should continue this conversation because it may be the conversation that saves the planet. So thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Anatole Levin, who is a Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and a journalist covering South Asia and the former Soviet Union for the Financial Times, the BBC and the Times of London. And he has a new article at Responsible Statecraft, Climate Chaos, the Global Threat Multiplier of Our Time. The more the U.S. foreign policy establishment indulges in great power competition, the less prepared it is for a real crisis. And he is the author of Climate Change and the Nation State, now in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the exaggerated alarm of the alleged demise of the Democrats and what they can do to announce and promote a vision forward. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joel Rogers, the Noam Chomsky Professor of Law, Political Science, Public Affairs and Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he also directs COWS, the National Resource and Strategy Centre on High Road Development. He is a contributing editor at The Nation and his books include The Hidden Election on Democracy, Right Turn, What Workers Want and American Society, How It Really Works. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joel Rogers.
2: Great to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And President Biden is hailing the passage of the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill as a monumental step forward. It's three months late. And obviously the concern amongst House progressives was if they, they wanted to tie it to the other infrastructure bill, the larger one, the social infrastructure bill as it's described. And they obviously had, at the end of the day, they they were pressured into a compromise. The squad didn't vote for it. But do you think now that it's passed that the progressives will be proven right, that Manchin and cinema no longer have an incentive to vote for the social infrastructure bill?
2: Well, they, they may whittle it down to a point where they're willing to go along with it. I, I don't know if you're going to get anybody from the House Senate side or the, the Republican Senate side to, to cross over uh, on the other bill. Uh, the way that they did eventually on the infrastructure thing. But we'll see. I'm not into making predictions. Certainly, Matt and Sinema's behavior thus far does not suggest that they are going to be in any way oriented toward the public good.
0: But can you make the case that three months have been wasted and in that three months, because you are essentially back to square one here, that the Democrats did a lot of damage to themselves?
2: Yeah, well, we're not quite back to square one because we didn't have an infrastructure bill that had been uh, passed by both houses before. Now now we have one. Uh, And and there are very basic infrastructure needs, for example, in broadband or or road repair or bridge repair or airport repair or environmental remediation, all of which is in the current thing that's finally been passed by the House, uh, which are good things to do. the, the guidances on the current bill are pretty awful. Uh, Manchin made sure that that happened, and so I think you're going to get much less environmental bounce from it. But at least it's doing something for broad public purposes. So I, I don't I don't think we're quite back to square one. That said, yeah, the Democrats do themselves a lot of damage. The Democratic brand is uh, uh, again easily tarnished as people who just want to spend money uh, and don't know what they're doing
0: but there seems to be a bit of a disconnect here in the sense that well first of all the press set up the uh, virginia race as a make or break for the democrats and a uh, weather vane for their f- fortunes in 2022 and 2024 and the point about it really is that that the guy that lost McAuliffe, was a was a centrist a moderate and now yeah. the punditry is saying that since the moderate this moderate loss, The party needs to get more moderate. I mean, what? Where's the sense in that?
2: Well, you know, Terry could be characterized as a, you know, as a moderate or a left winger or a right winger. I would characterize him more properly as, uh, you know, a crooked neoliberal. He was the guy who engineered the, the Atlantic Crossing stuff, made a lot of money off it, and uh, or Global Crossing stuff, and uh, you know, has been. Four square with the, the neoliberal program of uh, deregulation and government austerity and uh, regressive uh, tax revision, uh, more or less from jump, which is exactly what Biden was elected to tr- or tried, at least briefly, um, to, to push against. So, you know, I, I, I don't see this as a uh, as a defeat for um, the Biden you know, Reconstruction—it's basically a fourth reconstruction, or or a third reconstruction, or something. And I don't—I don't see it as against that. I see it as a pretty badly messaged campaign, successful demonization of critical race theory, whatever that means, and you know, exciting a bunch of suburbanites around stuff that seemed like overreaching by local school boards. So I—I don't—I don't see it as a you know in any way a condemnation of Biden's broader agenda, which was simply to get some some good stuff done that people have asked for for a very long time. You know, certainly you can't blame big farmers' purchase of uh, available House Democrats to defeat um, a move to lower drug prices. Uh, you can't blame that on woke politics or, or whatever it's being blamed on, or the Virginia thing is being blamed on. You know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, people got tired of a neoliberal who uh, did not run a very good campaign.
0: But the impression that's out there and that's been sort of pounded on by the press is that the Democrats are on a losing streak, they're in disarray, and the objective reality is that the economy is good, that all the measures that people, you know, use to in- indicate progress and prosperity like the yeah. stock market is up jobs are up i mean if you pull back a little bit it's not exactly like the sky is falling right
2: no 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 not not at all the sky is not falling right now and we still do have you know a, a nice fiat currency that happens to be the reserve and vehicle currency for all the world and you can do a huge amount through the federal reserve absolutely um that said, uh, levels of indebtedness in the U.S. Uh, personal indebtedness are reaching all-time highs. Uh, you've got people still bumping along, not seeing improvement in their everyday lives, even as they look around and see, you know, all these spectacular technological advances, but they're not getting the benefit of them. We still haven't, you know, as uh, you know hunger or other people might say democratize the knowledge economy they're not getting the the joyful uh... better life and flourishing that is available uh, if we reach for it but that thing requires some investment in infrastructure and networks of different sorts uh... to make it available to everybody so yeah this guy and then there's the climate crisis you know, out of uh, Glasgow, you know, we seem to be pretty securely heading toward a three-degree world, which will be, uh, you know, a total climate disaster. And eventually, uh, very soon, we've got to make major investments. Now, even the infrastructure bill that was just passed has some stuff on improving the grid, which is good, and, of course, the, the broadband thing again, and then some environmental remediation. But it's, it's very little. My hope is simply that it gets implemented quickly enough that people begin to see some benefit of some spending of public money, their shared money, on something that improves their lives. But the the, the big thing going on, I think, is is the, the broader narrative with the Democrats. They have to take out the plutocrat. You know, you've had, I don't know if you saw that Rand study or already talked about it, that, you know, over the last 40 years, about $50 trillion has been moved from people in the bottom, you know, 90% of the population and people in the top 1%. And uh, I'm sure that understates the degree of wealth concentration that's going on. You know, I, I, I think 2024, if you want to give advice to the Democrats is say, look, this is like the second Gilded Age, and we have to take out the, the, robbing, the robber barons of our time. We, they have to pay a fair share of their taxes. They, they made, them, made their money off this country, and they should pay back to this country to rebuild it.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Joel Rogers, the Noam Chomsky Professor of Law, Political Science, Public Affairs, and Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he also directs COWS, the National Resource and Strategy Center on High Road Development. And he's a contributing editor at The Nation, and his books include The Hidden Economy, On Democracy, Right Turn, What Workers Want, and American Society, How It Really Works. So in terms of selling these books, projects, or at least framing them. And if you want to frame the real debate, I mean, the two, you just mentioned climate change as an existential crisis. The other, I think, crisis is what you just alluded to, the second Gilded Age, which is what we should be discussing, is that the real struggle in this country is between democracy and plutocracy, and plutocracy is winning. And the plutocrats have got the game rigged because it's a money-driven system. And you, all, you ha- all they have to do is peel off two people. On, they own the Republicans outright, but all they have to do is peel off a couple of Democrats like Mansion and Cinema, and they frustrate and stop progressive progress. And in fact, Cinema alone is just one person who's stopping the Democrats from removing the uh, the Trump tax cuts and forcing billionaires to pay a fair share along with corporations. So she's right. alone holding the line on that. So, right
2: which as you as your as your listeners know she'd voted against uh, when it first came around you know so she voted against it and then she voted against repealing part of it yeah right so talk about lack of consistency yeah look it's very hard to rule for the people if you don't have a popular majority and Democrats don't have a functioning popular majority right now you got to win some elections
0: well, but they also have got to sell. There, we we're pointing out earlier that things aren't as bad as the press and the pundits would indicate. That the Democrats are are losing when, in fact, objectively, things are relatively good. But a recent poll indicated that the public thinks that the Build Back Better agenda is not going to help people like them, the average Americans. And the ABC reported that Democrats are failing to sell. The legislation to the public. So, is that where the heart of the problem is? That well, you know, uh,
2: that, that's certainly a big part of the problem for sure. I, I think the communication on this stuff has been uh, dreadful. Starting with tolerating the, the the press discussion of it as a three point five trillion dollar thing, when you know that's just using the congressional budget office's denomination over. Over 10 years, so begin, so start out by dividing by 10 on everything, uh, or in the case of the the recent bill, a little bit less than that, and then say what people are going to get. Don't talk about the numbers. Talk about what what is what's the service that's being provided, and and why it's not just a give out to lazy people, but it's something that's helping opportunity and helping them um, put away some income and and uh, eventually some wealth of their own you know make it more more a a sort of a class struggle thing than um a liberal government programs for for everybody in the world type thing you know make it very concrete is what has to be done with with the communication stuff i mean drug prices is sorry to go back to that but i don't know anyone who doesn't think uh, and this is going on forever in terms of democratic promises to get this done, Obama promised it during the 2008 campaign. And, you know, that's a long time ago. They, of course, we should use uh, Medicare's uh, ability to bar, you know, its tremendous market power for the recipients of of these private pharmaceutical services, these drugs. So even before you get, you know, into the sort of big de-rigging of the entire system that people like Dean Baker have talked about so well for so long. This is a very simple thing that's wildly popular with the public, and the Democrats didn't even support that. So,
0: well, again, it's the one person, though, Joe. Cinema. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, no, it wasn't just cinema. It was three oh, there's the three guys now. in the
0: House, right, yeah.
2: Right, right, right. So you've got to get majorities of people who are on a popular program that can be easily communicated to everybody, and then you have to begin to demonize your opponent. Uh, you know, this is politics, after all. This is tooth and claw. You know, cinema and Manchin and Mitch McConnell and all the people who went along with all the junk that, that Trump did to this country have to be tarnished with Trump. Uh, you can't just leave that untouched.
0: So just in the last few minutes, and let's talk a little about how you get to the point where you can reverse the trend towards plutocracy and bring America back towards democracy. And, of course, the worst thing that's happening is democracy itself is under threat here in the United States by the, the Republicans who bought on to voter suppression. They would rather cheat than compete. It's absolutely clear that... Uh, they have rigged the system for 2022 and 2024, and we could end up with a one-party state like they have in um, Hungary, where uh, Tucker Carlson recently visited and was fated by the kleptocrat and wannabe dictator there. So that's what we have in Trump and wannabe dictator, and the GOP is his party. They're in thrall in the thrall of of their dear leader, and right. as you pointed out there has to be a massive popular movement on the part of the Democrats to to reverse this. How do you get to that point? You're in Wisconsin, which is a a kind of (laughs) test case of the challenge in America, where it's sort of half progressive and half reactionary. And how do you Uh, win over your reactionary neighbor?
2: Well, I mean, you have to refurbish the Democratic brand um, big time, because the brand itself is what's toxic right now. Uh, And the brand is set uh, in these national discussions that communicated down without question to in local elections. uh, You know, you can still win statewide by by upping the turnout in the heavily uh, Democratic areas. But you cannot win on a legislative basis there. Uh, And so where the brand is, uh, as I say, pretty toxic. People don't know what it stands for. It's not easily communicated. Um, So you have to make, you have to reinvent the Democratic Party as the party for the people, not the plutocrats. I think anyone could understand that and then show evidence of what they propose to do, namely take on those plutocrats in terms of uh, taxation, direct taxation of wealth, uh, uh, inheritance taxes, uh, you know, the uh, ridiculous, you know, step. Exclusion on transfer of wealth to your to other people. There's a pretty well worked out, I think, understood program of reducing wealth inequalities and income inequalities. So that's where you get the money. And then, what are you going to spend it on? You're going to spend it on lowering the cost of prescription drugs for people, expanding Medicare to cover dental and hearing loss, which is, you know, certainly big concern. A lot of the things the Democrats have have in the program but are not talking about concretely enough.
0: Well, just in the last minute, though, how do you get Democrats elected if you're going to have this popular sweep to get rid of the plutocrats? And since we have a money-driven system, that means that the Democrats have got to figure out how to get financed. (laughs) The Republicans are getting financed by the plutocrats, and we know the sellout Democrats like Mansion and Sinema, they're getting financed by the plutocrats. So, right. in other words, along with the, the need to build up the Democratic Party in a popular movement, they're going to yeah. have to find a way to finance it unless you know, the Supreme Court's not going to wake up and decide that Citizens United was a bad idea.
2: No, no, they, they've already woke up and said, uh, we're with the plutocrats on this one, and so we're going to throw it back to the states knowing that uh, there's not going to be as much action in states as you need. No, it's got to be done by legislation. So, you know, first thing is let's restore the right to vote or let's establish a right to vote, you know, pass the, the Right to Vote Act. Uh, even That's something even that Manchin was in favor of. He was one of the, you know, the the co-endorsers on it. And for that, you know, you've got to politicize, again, the, uh, the filibuster, you know, this, This error in the old 1806 Act that amended the Senate without taking care of that problem, which has been used by plutocrats and racist plutocrats and and other bad people more or less ever since. The left has to understand if you're going to have a majority government, it's got to be a majority government. The Senate is already a minority institution. You can get a filibuster-proof majority of 52 in the Senate. We're not filibuster for a majority in the Senate. You get 52 votes in the Senate uh, with only 17 percent of the population. We don't need the filibuster in addition to all the protections on on minority state or smaller state rights that the Senate already built in. So I'd, get, I'd go four square to get rid of the filibuster and then try to finally win an election on a popular program. Biden won an election on a popular program with very short coattails because, you know, the states have essentially been given over to Republican machines. Um, But but you've got to you've got to tell the story and then run people all over. And you don't actually need to win all over. You can reduce the margins of Republicans all over. Um, You could do that. You can, you know, it's going to be a long game. But um, it's getting very, very late just to, to dither around here on your communication. So I agree with you totally that Democrats have to be much more aggressive in their communication. But it's also got to be a, a popular program. It's got to be what you were saying, an anti plutocrat program.
0: Well, Joel Rogers, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Joel Rogers, who's the Noam Chomsky Professor of Law, Political Science, Public Affairs, and Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he also directs CALS, the National Resource and Strategy Center on High Road Development. He's a contributing editor to The Nation, and his books include The Hidden Election, On Democracy, Right Turn, What Workers Want, and American Society, How It Really Works. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org/donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation. Where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Took the kids to the and by